That song may be stuck in your head this week. That's a good thing. I've had a song stuck in my head for the last week. Um, It's an old one from the 1970s, about 1972. Some of you wouldn't be familiar with it. Uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote a song in 1972. It it went like this, um, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Some of you know that. It's familiar to you. Um, You'll see why that one's been stuck in my head as we go through this particular text this morning. I'm kind of wondering, though, as we step into this, what name of Jesus is familiar to you? And, And by that, I mean this. There are, by some counts, upwards of 200 names for Jesus in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Some of you have a a name that's familiar to you that you associate with Jesus? Go ahead and call it out. Redeemer. Redeemer, yeah. Prince of Peace. Mm Oh, one at a time. Godly? Yahweh, sorry. I'm not real good at hearing. Emmanuel, yeah. Wonderful counselor, savior, mm-hmm. friend. There is one particular name among those 200 that rises above all the others. We're told it's the name above every name at which the mention of it, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But we'll get back to that in just a minute. I want to take you back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. And that name that we're referring to is going to come out powerfully this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring one, you'll find them in the racks in front of you, or you can follow along up on the screen. Here's where we left off at in Acts chapter 2. The Feast of Pentecost has taken place. It's a festival where individuals came into Jerusalem and, and they celebrate. And Peter got a chance to speak to a crowd of thousands. We don't know how many exactly, but we do know that as a result of his speaking, 3,000 people made a commitment to Jesus. They decided that they they would follow him, and to the degree that Jewish people who didn't actually think baptism was for them agreed to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and things radically changed. The church was born, and the church exploded at that point in time. Now, as we find chapter 3 unfolding, Peter and John are on their way into the temple. It's in the afternoon, and at the same time they're walking up the steps of the temple to go into the courtyard, another man is coming to the temple, except he's not walking, he's being carried. He's being carried by some friends because he's never walked a day in his life. He was born disabled. And so he doesn't know what it is to walk. And like many other people in his situation, he's developed a routine. And the routine is something like this. His friends carry him to a place where the public is going in and out, and they set him down, and he begins to beg. He's a beggar. He he needs people to take mercy upon him and give him coins, or he won't survive. And so they set him down at a gate outside of the temple, and that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, it starts like this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along with whom they used to, used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, 
in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. If you're not familiar with the word alms, it means coins or money. So that's his method. Now, apparently the disciples had the habit, of, even though they're followers of Jesus, of still going to the Jewish temple at a certain time to pray. What we know is that in, in, in Jewish tradition in the first century, they would pray at nine in the morning, at noon, and three in the afternoon. So we're told here in this verse, it's the ninth hour, meaning if you count nine hours from sunrise, that makes it three in the afternoon. What's significant about that is that's also the time for the evening sacrifice. So we have the prayer worshipers coming in, those who come to the temple anyways, and those who are coming for the evening sacrifice. That means there's a big crowd. A lot of people are gathering. We're told specifically this individual is being put down at the gate called Beautiful. Uh, Just to give you a little background on this particular setting where they're placing him, this is a magnificent structure. Many people wanted to enter through this gate called the Beautiful Gate, because of how ornate it is. But you can see on the screen, what you're looking at now doesn't look so ornate. Matter of fact, it's just a masonry wall. Well, this is the archaeological find, and it wasn't so much of a dig as, it much as it was a recognition that this is where the beautiful gate used to be. You can go to Jerusalem today and see it. But what you see are two arches that have been completely blocked in. Why? Well, when Rome conquered Jerusalem in A.D. 70, they looked at those gates, the beautiful gates, and decided those are worth a whole lot more to us than they are to them because we defeated them. We're going to melt those down. What was remarkable about the beautiful gates? They filled not only those arches, but they were made of Corinthian brass overlaid with gold and silver. Apparently, the workmanship was magnificent. Josephus, the first century historian, said, that they sparkled in the rise of the morning sun as it hit the beautiful gate with the silver and gold on them. They were so large it required 20 men to open and close them morning and night. So they were indeed beautiful. They had 15 steps that ascended up to the gate. And this man is placed at that gate. He's being carried along by his friends. How long have they been doing it? Well, if you go over into chapter 4, you'll see that he's in his 40s. So they've been carrying him a long time. He's got long-term caregivers. We're told that he's lame from his mother's womb, which means he's disabled from birth. His case is absolutely hopeless. There is nothing the doctors of his day can do for him. So begging is all he's ever known. Now, if you're a beggar in the first century, you've got three locations you can go to. You can go to the gate of a very wealthy man's home and sit outside his home and, and hope that as he comes in and out, he'll take favor upon you. Or you can go to the highway. And I don't mean like I-96, that didn't exist at that time, but there, there were thoroughfares by which the carts and the wagons went up and down. They would sit sometimes out on the highway, but the most choice place is the gate at the temple. Because people are coming in and out on a regular daily basis, multiple times throughout the day. So he's got a prime spot, the entrance to the temple, at the gate known as beautiful. But as good as his spot is, his situation's not changing. He has no hope. Verse 3 says this, When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now, it's true in our day, as much as it was in the first century, that when you lock eyes with someone who's begging, they expect to receive something from you. 
Uh, just associate this with me. If you're driving down 127 and you get off at Lake Lansing Road and you see individuals who are holding up those cardboard signs, I'm sure some of you have seen the different corners around Lansing, you know that if you lock eyes with that person who's standing on the corner, pretty much they're going to be walking up to your car. So human nature is this. We get up to the ramp and we think, oh, there's a guy standing there. Maybe I'll just pick up my phone and call somebody. Or uh, I wonder what's playing on the radio right now. Or we begin having a conversation with someone in the car because we're doing anything we can, looking away, looking through, looking past, trying not to make eye contact. But in their case, they're making eye contact because they want his attention. And he gets the message. Peter and John lock eyes with him, and so he thinks it's his chance. He expects money. He does not comprehend what he's about to get. And I understand that because there are times in my life when I am so focused on my problems and my issues, I'm totally missing the bigger picture. Can you identify with that? can totally miss what God's up to because I'm so focused on the minutia of the little things. Well, God has bigger things in store for him, a much, much bigger picture But he's not seeing that right now. Our God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine. That's what we just sang about. But he doesn't know that yet because he's looking to the wrong source. He thinks money is going to fix his situation. Let's go into what Peter had to say to him. Verse 6, just the first part of it. The first half of verse 6 says, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. Now that's going to be unexpected. Because if you're the beggar locking eyes with the guy, you think that you're going to get what you're expecting. What could you possibly give me that's more valuable than money? Peter's response to him is code for, you don't need what you think you need. It's not what I possess. It's not what I own. What you need is Jesus. God's got bigger plans for you. I just need to remind you of that this morning here at New Hope, that your God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So far as the heaven is above the earth, my thoughts are above your ways and my ways are above your ways. The same God says in Jeremiah 33.3, call unto me and I will show you great and mighty things which you don't even know. That's our God. That who is who Peter is trying to point him to. So look at his response in verse 6. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Now understand, if you're not familiar with this story, Peter is not being selfish with the guy. He just doesn't have coins in his pocket, but he can certainly see this guy's need. Now let's hit the pause button for just a minute. This beggar has little reason to believe in Jesus. He really doesn't. There isn't a whole lot of things going on in his world that would cause him to believe that Jesus can do anything for him. As far as he knows, Rome killed Jesus. He's old news. He's been buried in the grave. Hasn't it been like 50 days since anybody's seen him? This individual doesn't know anything differently. He was a blasphemer that was hung on the cross as far as he's concerned. So I think there's some astonishment going on here that the name of Jesus has even been brought up. Peter is using Jesus has to be incredibly confusing. So think of it this way. If you're this man and you're lame from birth, And you hear there's an individual who's making his way through the Middle East and he hangs out in Jerusalem and he's healing people. Would you not do everything you possibly could to get to see him? If you hear that there's someone who's causing the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to talk, the lame to walk, and you've got friends who are willing to carry you day after day after day to the temple, would you not ask your friends to carry you to go see this Jesus guy? 
I would be. But Jesus is gone. He's been gone for weeks. So there's no reason for him to have any belief that this Jesus can do anything for him. Those details alone make what Peter's saying here all the more compelling when you understand what Peter has just said when he said, in the name of Jesus, walk. So let's look very closely at what Peter said. There's one Greek word in your notes this morning that's going to appear on the screen. It's the word onoma. And it's speaking specifically of character or the nature or the authority of this particular one. Here's why this name is so significant. Because onama has a counterpart in the Greek language. It's oname. And oname, that's kind of like your driver's license. You, you, you all have driver's license if you're a driver this morning, and on there is your street address and probably your driver's license number. And, and it tells the individual who's looking at your driver's license specific details about you. But it doesn't say anything about your character. Onama is speaking about the character or the authority. So Jesus the Nazarene is the common designation of Jesus. When they put him on the cross, they put the driver's license above his head, which simply said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now you remember that the individuals who crucified him wanted Rome to change the name. They said, we want you to put on the sign, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, what I've said, I've said. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's just the ID by which they knew him. But Peter is saying something different here. The onama. See, in the Middle East, your name is not just your ID. It expresses the very nature of the person. The authority We understand this in some way here in the United States because we have ambassadors. We have embassies around the world, Thailand, Philippines, China, Russia, and ambassadors of the United States serve there. Now, they have a name. Those individuals who work in those embassies go by their own individual name. But when they go to meet a leader of a foreign nation, they go with the full power and the authority and the backing of the United States of America because they're an ambassador of the United States. That's the same sense that's going on here when Peter says, in the onama of Yeshua, Mashiach, the Nazarene. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a magic formula. This is not an incantation like abracadabra. That's not what's going on here. To do something in the name of Jesus is to act consistent with his will. I wanted you to see this on the screen. It's my own quote, so I didn't put my name up there. I just wanted you to see it so you get it down. To do something, church, when you act in the name of Jesus, is to act consistent with his will. To do what he would do if he were here. So reality check for you and I this morning. We wear the name of Christ wherever we go, do we not? Christian Jesus' name is on us. So how are you doing with that? Do we act? Do we function as though we wear the name, the greatest name on earth? Uh, we'll take the pause button back off a minute and jump back into the story while you chew on that. Peter here is proclaiming the authority of the risen Jesus to absolutely change circumstances. The power that is in that name releases power, and Peter says so because his response is, in the name, in the onoma of that name, walk. 
He's bringing power through what Jesus can do. Now, that's said in the present imperative in the Greek language. It means this, to begin walking and keep on walking. Peter's expecting a response. Here's the problem. The beggar doesn't budge because the beggar knows he can't walk. He's never walked before. So look at verse 7. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So Peter's got to physically grab a hold of this guy and pull him up. And here's what's beautiful about this. No training wheels required. The guy's never walked before. Now toddlers, when they get up, they stumble and fall and fall down sometimes forward or backward. This guy has never walked. So you would think he's going to be like a toddler. But he's got perfect agility. He begins jumping. He's ready for Tom Izzo to put him in the game. This guy can hoop. Now, apparently, he feels the strength surge through him because he begins leaping. God has just accomplished in a flash what God alone can do, and the effect is traumatic. And I mean this in a good way. Traumatic, absolutely, because this individual responds with just unbridled excitement, which knows no bounds whatsoever. He's like a child with a toy. Walking's not enough. He's got to jump, and you would do the same thing too. Now watch the crowd's response. Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, remember the crowd. They're showing up for church. It's worship time. It's time for the prayer service. So they're coming in at 3 in the afternoon to watch the sacrifice, to pray, and it's very sedate. It's very dignified. It's very calm. And they hear this southern boy over here yelping it up. Anybody here this morning got a good woohoo? Uh, there you go. See, I love New Hope because you guys are willing to do that. We, we've got woohoo going on here. There's some yelping. I'm going to speculate with you that the most genuine worship taking place, just Mark speculating, I think the very most genuine worship taking place in the temple at that moment is the praise of the woohoo of the beggar regardless of all these other people who are showing up to watch the ritual going on, you try convincing this man his response is excessive. It's very, very public. God has invaded some desperate circumstances, and the outburst has caused shock on the part of the crowd. Verse 10 says they're starting to take note of him. Remember, there's a big crowd here. They recognize him. Now, that means something very significant to us. That means there's no chance this is a trick. They know him. Forty years. Somebody's been carrying him to the temple. He's been begging, born as a cripple from birth. No chance of a trick here. That a miracle had taken place, absolutely undeniable. When we get deeper into the text next week, you'll see that the leaders of Israel had to do something with this. As a matter of fact, even they recognized what's going on. Look with me on the screen at chapter 4, verse 16. What do we do with these men for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem? And we cannot deny it. Uh, We could end right there. 
John and Peter could go on into the temple and join the afternoon worship and, and do what they do, and this guy could go live a new life, and the happy ever after story would conclude. But the problem is this guy will not be easily silenced. The, the crowd is seeing gymnastics. They're hearing loud praise. This is really consistent with what Isaiah wrote in the Old Testament, chapter 35, when he began talking about what it will be like when those who were in wheelchairs begin jumping. The lame will jump like deer. Isaiah wrote that about the beginning of the Messianic age. Because of the power of Jesus being evidenced, Well, if these individuals are coming to the temple, they certainly know the Old Testament. They begin putting the pieces together. And what we're told in verse 11 that happens next is they start running towards the disciples. Go with me to verse 11. There's been this fire that's been kindled. I've told you before that... um, Let's back it up one slide there, Matthew, if you're up there. I told you before that I I just love Charles Simeon. He's this old dead theologian, um, died back in the 1800s. But in 1837, he wrote this about this individual. I I love this quote, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a moment. He says that there was an exquisite joy that motivated his whole frame. I'm thinking this way in 2015. He's beginning to invade their personal space. It's like, I love you, man, because you'll see what happens next as he begins hanging on them. Verse 11, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. So he's hugging on them. How can he restrain his emotion? Why should he? Now, this porch that's surrounding the court of the Gentiles, this is where Jesus used to hang out. The portico of Solomon was this area that's massive. The the court of the Gentiles was acres, literally, and thousands of people could fit in there. So the portico of Solomon are these columns, Corinthian Greek-style columns, one after another, that held a really large cement roof. And people gathered there, to be taught and to discuss theology. Well, that's where we see these thousands of people who begin running towards Peter and John. Now, I don't believe that Peter and John are trying to attract a crowd. That's not the way I read this. They're heading into the temple. It's the time of prayer. But when the crowds come, they sense the mood changes. Something's wrong. They show up by the thousands And they're thinking that Peter and John have done something in their own ability and they will have nothing to do with this. They say, it's not us. This is Jesus. Go with me to verse 12. But when Peter and John, Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? Now I'm picturing this healed man who's clinging to Peter and John is right there with him, very visible to these individuals, evidence of God's power. And when the crowd gathers, Peter launches with two questions because there's some confusion going on here and he wants to clear it up. So the two questions are, why are you amazed? You know God is a miracle working God. Why are you amazed at this? And secondly, why do you gaze at us? We're two fishermen from Galilee. 
It's not like we've got some power or godliness. That's the word piety is godliness. It's not like we're so godly or as though we've got some power. Here's the dilemma they face. The the crowd acknowledges God alone can do miracles. That's why he said, why are you amazed? Because God can do miracles. But they've denied that Jesus is God. And he's just called the onama of Jesus Christ, the Yeshua Mashiach, to release his power. So the crowd is left now with no explanation for what they see before their eyes. So Peter's going to make it extraordinarily clear, and here's what he's going to stress. They're in a disastrous position because they stand at odds with the God of wonders, having denied Jesus. So the name of Jesus is what is at issue here. So what you see in these next closing verses is Peter playing on the name of God. Go with me to this next verse, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So this is really subtle. But what he's doing here is if the names are going to be discussed, he's starting with a name they all know. It's very, very deliberate. A name that the crowd recognizes. Clearly, in verse 13, the God of our fathers. What do they know about the God of their fathers? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that's the covenant-keeping God. That's the God who does what He says He's going to do. And the God who says He's going to do something said He was going to send a Messiah. And that as a result of the Messiah coming, the lame were going to leap like deer. So Peter is being absolutely brilliant through the power of the Holy Spirit working through him in pointing out to them, God has done something here. Verse 13 says, that God has glorified someone. What does it imply, church, that God has glorified someone? The same God who says, I will not share my glory with another. That God has glorified God. God has glorified Himself. So what's being stated here is extraordinarily clear. Extraordinarily clear. Jesus is God. So he says, God glorified Jesus. Jesus is not only alive, He's doing things only God can do. The same Jesus God glorified, you disowned. You sold Him over to Peter, when he, or to Pilate, when He decided to release Him. So is Peter not being really, really bold here? He's standing in the temple the very place where the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees hang out and making the same claim that got Jesus crucified. Now let's go forward and see what he has to say to them. Verse 14, But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Just a moment ago, several of you called out the different names of Jesus. You see three of them up on the screen right now. The Holy One. That was used in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was in a cemetery. And some demon-possessed guy come running up to him and began screaming at Jesus at the top of his lungs, What are you doing here? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then they begged him that he wouldn't destroy them. 
Even the demons know Jesus by that title, the Holy One. And then Peter says he's the righteous one. That means innocent of any crime, not capable of committing crimes. He's the dikaios, righteous. This third one I love that he's mentioned here, the prince of life. Somebody here earlier said the prince of peace. Well, the prince of life is another title that he used of himself. Notice it this way, John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the what new hope? The life. Jesus said that about himself. And notice the next one, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the... And no one gets to the Father except by me. Even though people don't like to hear that in 2015, there is one way to God through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. So here's Peter's point. The prince of life has been put to death by you, and here's what's ironic about it. The paradox is, You beg them to release the one who took a life. The prince of life has been sacrificed, but Barabbas has been traded. See, he's piling it on. Israel's guilt in rejecting Jesus is monumental, and they know it. Come with me into the last verse, verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. It may seem like I'm ending prematurely before the story is done, but we're going to go into the deeper heart of what's going on here next week. What I want to focus on to bring this to an end is one particular phrase. It is the name of Jesus in verse 16. Peter's argument says, you have seen how this man has been healed. It's through faith in Jesus. Is it not the same way, New Hope, with your souls? How has your soul been healed and been given perfect health in the name of Jesus? There is salvation in no other name, Acts 4.12 This will really come out again next week, but let's look at the way that Peter said it. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other power can change you from weakness to strength, from death to life. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus There's just something about that name. I find it remarkable that I see this individual identified as being healed through the name of Jesus when I think of myself. And I want you to see the screen, verse 16, amplified with a blank, and ask yourself, can you put your name in that blank? The name of Jesus, which has strengthened Mark... Katie, Jake, Terry, Bob, Tom, Joanne. It is the name of Jesus which has made you whole. See, this man is me. This man is us. If he had the technology in the first century and he could take a selfie, I could could see Peter and John photobombing him on either side, smiling really big. But if you Photoshop out his head, you can put my head right in there. You can put yourself in there. He is us. From the womb, we were born into sin, church. 
We were born broken with sin, completely disabled, incapable of doing anything whatsoever. There's no doctor in the world that can fix this situation. It is only the name of Jesus that can change your circumstance. And by the way, if you didn't know it, Jesus has a perfect healing record. 100% of those who come to him for salvation find salvation. 100%. Matter of fact, he said, if you come to me, I will in no way cast you out. Meaning you can't out-sin God. If you think you have this morning, God says otherwise. I will forgive. That is what he promises. He will give you a brand new beginning and you can receive it at no cost whatsoever because the price has already been paid. Jesus did it on the cross. So we would ask it this way. Is there anyone who cannot be healed of their soul? No one. God says it's available to everyone. So my question for you as we bring this plane to a landing, what name do you know him by today? Is he more than a swear word? You may find it ironic that I've asked that, but I've shared with people before here at New Hope that I had a young girl ask me years ago, why did they name Jesus Christ a swear word? The only way she ever knew him. The only way she'd ever heard him expressed. Is Jesus more than an expression of profanity? Is he the name that is above every name? See, we live in a period of time when the name of Jesus is being attempted to be removed from every public discussion, unless it's used in profanity. See, if you say it like this, Jesus Christ, it's okay. The crowd's good with that. But if you say, Jesus Christ, it's different, right? It's totally different. And people know just by the intonation of your voice. Yet it's at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day. So I'm here to ask you to do something with me to end this, to read Philippians 2.10 together. Perhaps it's been a while since you've seen this stated clearly from the Bible. It says it this way. Let's read it together. Philippians 2.10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that it says every name in heaven, every name on earth, everyone under the earth. That means Satan himself will one day profess Jesus Christ as Lord, even though it's going to grade him greatly. Even though he is the prince and the power of the air, every name, every person that stands opposed to him will one day, according to God's own word, confess the name of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. So you go out this morning, and before you grab your car keys, just hear me on this, Christian. If you name the name of Christ, Christian, you wear it tomorrow into that office meeting. You wear it into the workplace, into the classroom, student, wherever you go this week. If you are a Christ follower, you wear the name of Jesus, the greatest name in all of the universe. Are you living like it? Are you making decisions that cause you to be identified as a Christian, the one who belongs to the King of Kings? It's a huge responsibility, isn't it? It's a weight, and we can't do it in our own strength. 
We do it because of the power of the Holy Spirit that works through us because we're not capable on our own. So that's how I'm going to pray to close this, that God's Spirit that is in there in us would show itself in power this week. Would you pray with me that way? Father, I specifically say I'm praying for us because it's such a monumental weight to carry the responsibility of wearing the name of your Son. And we can only do it in your strength and in your power. So this very same Holy Spirit whom we've been learning about, I pray that you would use to fill us with boldness and confidence that we would walk in courage as we name the name of Jesus and that we would reflect his values and his character and his power and his authority in this world that is desperately looking for answers. Father, your, your disciples, your followers are before you in this auditorium this morning. I pray for your strength to rest upon them. And I pray that your blessing would go before them, especially for having spent time here this morning and studying your word. Magnify yourself in their life in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.